Hello, it's Jack Tutor here of Attention Magazine. Welcome to Crucial Listening, the podcast where I speak with musicians and sound artists about three albums that are important to them. My guest this time is Alluvium, which is the project of Matthew Cooper, based in Portland. Alluvium's new album, Wearing Marvels in Consensus Reality, is out now on Temporary Residence. Like so much of my favourite Alluvium, there's this combination of generative elements that seem to move with relative ease and repetition, and these elements that move much more slowly, that feel laden, melancholic, kind of heartbroken, very human. So there's this combination of ease and difficulty interacting with each other. And so much, like, memory feels really prominent in Matthew's music and in this one too. There's a sense of accumulating retrospect that's kind of like building up like stones in a backpack. And memory feels like an appropriate topic, at least from my perspective as a listener. I spent so much time as a teenager listening to Matthew's music. I've checked out each Alluvium record since. So I have my own gathering memories of listening to Alluvium. So this one was really special. I love the new record. Uh, It was really nice to speak to Matthew about that one. And he picked three really interesting records too from across a few different areas. So yeah, I really hope you enjoy this one. So if you're enjoying Crucial Listening, you can donate to the podcast to help keep things ticking. Over at Coffee, there's a link in the show notes, ko-fi.com forward slash crucial listening. And you can donate one off, you can donate monthly, any amount you please. Or simply tell someone about the show, review it, all that stuff. Thank you for listening as always. Hope you enjoy this one. This is Alluvium Matthew Cooper on Crucial Listening. Hello, Matthew. Welcome to Crucial Listening. Thank you. Hello. Thank you for coming on the podcast. We are here to talk about your three important albums. Before we get to the important records, I want to talk about your new album, Wearing Marvels in Consensus Reality, which is coming out gradually at the moment um, as we're (laughs) recording. Uh, Let's start there. Um, What was the thinking behind this gradual release i mean i should say it's been really nice to get a kind of appraisal for each of these couplets of tracks and to um you know to get used to them as they're coming out so yeah tell me a bit about that staggered release um it was kind of uh i mean it was really a bunch of different things um first off the the record was completed um a while ago <laughs> so right and uh, obviously you know there there's been a lot of um kind of issues with production lines and things like that over the past few years mm. and that i know that's been very frustrating to a lot of musicians and labels and 
Yeah, I, I had just been sitting on it and I was just so excited to want to share it with people <laughs> that I was just like, well, instead of just doing standard singles, like, you know, because normally I guess the the way people tend to do things is they release a track or two um, within a couple of months before the album release. And I thought, well, can we start that process now you know can we start this early earlier i just want people to hear it i don't know i think i was also you know streaming is sort of a a uh, i guess let's just call it an elephant in the room um Mm -hmm. for for many people and uh, i think oftentimes when i see things that can be kind of confusing or problematic or strange uh or new Um, I tend to try to look at them as an opportunity to, uh, to play with it. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I thought, you know, why not, why not try this, uh, you know, and see what happens with it. And it will also give people an opportunity to sort of, uh, kind of become familiar with the record, uh, um, as opposed to just it getting dumped all at once and just, basically getting lost in the shuffle of people's lives and forgotten about, maybe this would be a way to sort of um, engage people a little bit more in, in each individual track. And, and honestly, it's some, it's one of the first albums that I've written where I've felt like each individual track had something very specific to say, as Mm. opposed to them, them sort of all sort of congealing into some greater, miasma of concept or whatever i i felt that that, honestly i just felt like the tracks could stand by themselves um Mm. just as equally as in the album format um so yeah i mean you know tv shows and series television series is obviously release things once a week or so and um, that that seems to work with people's engagement so i think i was just kind of playing around with a lot of that stuff but really the driving motivating factor was i just really wanted to share it with people and you deployed some new compositional methods for this record in part out of necessity as i understand because of the issues you're experiencing with your left arm so i I wondered if you could tell me a bit about these methods and how they how you deployed them to circumvent the the issues you're experiencing right um so yeah i basically uh, had you know like an undiagnosed sort of frozen shoulder or shoulder blade and arm issue and it kind of left one you know one of my arms and hands basically unusable or when used you know sort of pretty painful Hmm. um and although i had already begun writing a little bit of the music for this record um and the third track uh, is probably one of the oldest tracks on the record and it's sort of is the centerpiece that I started kind of working off of. Hmm. Um, so some, some pieces were written, I guess how I would traditionally do th- things, um, which is basically just kind of freehand, I guess, um, for, uh, I, that's the term that I guess I would use. I, hmm. um, it, it just basically me noodling around on things and finding things and nothing being clicked or synced or I, I, I've never really used, um, 
anything to uh, to snap things to a grid, I guess. Um, right. Or like quantization or automations of uh, uh, out any of that sort of stuff. Um, that is very, I mean, extremely inherent in the electronic music world. I mean, it basically all, all synthesized music uh, <laughs> to, 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 you know, popular synthesized music is basically based off of these methods. It's been around forever. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not something that I've really ever used or been super focused or interested in on. I guess I, I, I used it a little bit on the Martin Eden record that I released, uh, an electronic record. But um, mm. it was never something that really incorporated into, into Alluvium, at least. Um, and so what I essentially started doing was applying these techniques to orchestral music. And that's not necessarily the newest thing in the world either, but it was definitely multiple new grounds for me. Um, but that involved basically using more modern compositional tools or toys, for lack of a better term. Uh, <laughs> you know, these days now you buy a keyboard and there are just, you know, buttons that you hit that have chord progressions and uh, arpeggios and everything is just all lined up into little boxes and you can't play anything out of key and all that kind of stuff. Um, so... I wasn't quite going that far, um, but but uh, but to but to some degree that that those sorts of tools were helpful in basically mm. allowing me to not be sitting at a piano and actually manually working on things. I could instead be hitting buttons to have things happen and then edit those things down, all basically while just using one hand. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, nice. And the recording process, as well, I understand, was primarily via like teleconference during the pandemic, which is precisely pretty astonishing when you hear the record to think it was assembled in this way. So, yeah, give me <laughs> I'll a little. Take that as a compliment <laughs> for sure. Yeah. <laughs> it, it was. It was, as such. It, it was. I mean, it was. Uh, Honestly, the I would say the hardest part about the entire process was the mixing. I mean, I've I've never loved buckling down and making things sound exactly the way they need to be sounding, and mm. uh, EQ and compression and getting everything all exactly. You know, I've I've always just loved so much. I guess what some people would call like demo itis, which is. <laughs> when music so you've kind of written something and and only you really can hear the actual intention of it as opposed to what's actually there mm. um and sometimes you can show that something to somebody and and you hear its potential um but maybe that other person can't hear it and i've I kind of love I, I love living in that world because it's because it's perfect, right? It's it's never it's never fixed. It can it it, it has limitless possibility. But as soon as you have to actually get to work and like make it become that thing that you envision it to be, it's I mean, it it, it in some ways it, it ruins it. And, mm. you know, if it finalizes it, it has to end. Um, you have to present it to people, all those sorts of things. So anyway, mixing has always been sort of to my chagrin. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so we had to record the entire orchestra sections essentially over Zoom. I, I mean, they weren't 
recorded through Zoom. They were recorded there, but uh, uh, we dialed in and worked with them hand in hand as you go through the process um, to make sure everybody's hitting their parts correctly and it's got the emphases and nuances that you want. Mm-hmm. Um, and then outside of that as well, um, I mean, at least, you know, I was working with a studio who, you know, this is what they do. They've worked with Hollywood film scores and many other musicians. Um, but then there was also, you know, part of this time we're in COVID lockdowns in the United States. And, um, I was working with other individual musicians playing violin and bass clarinet and horn and voice and all of them were recording just from their respective home studios or uh, the church down the road or, you know, what, you know, whatever worked for them. Um, so, yeah, there were a lot of moving parts to it uh, and getting all those parts to line up and clean them up and sound the way that I was hoping for them to sound was, you know, it was it was an undertaking for sure. Lovely. I mean... It's a wonderful record. It's really special. Um, I'll put Thank a you. link in the show notes so that other people can check it out and have lovely experiences as well. Uh, we we should go on to your important record. Important cool. records, three of them, Matthew. So um, <laughs> one question I'd like to ask at this point is about how you thought about the word important when picking your list. So... Yeah. yeah, was there a way you understood that word in order to come up with the records that you did? Um, it was sort of a forced understanding of the word. <laughs> uh, I mean, you know, three records. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's yeah. not on really, is it? <laughs> um, so... What I went with was, I guess, they were records that taught me something, that taught me something about music and or the world of being a musician that I, I guess that I've, that I've, I've come to find practical um, in Mm. my everyday consideration of working on music. Cool. So let's go for your first pick. So it's the Prokofiev Young Person's Guide to the Orchestra, Peter and the Wolf, narrated by Richard Baker. So give me a little introduction then as to why this one's important to you. Um, This one was in, when I was a little kid, it was a record that was in my house. And um, Mm. it was mixed up a with some other stuff my brother had a bunch of rush records and some early u2 stuff and my parents had a simon and garfunkel sounds of silence in there as well that i still have that record nice um in fact i still have the turntable and receiver that i listened to these records on (laughs) um so the Peter and the Wolf one, amazingly, honestly, I really don't remember the Britain Young Person's Guide being on the opposite side of this record, um, which is interesting because, you know, it, I think it sort of became repopularized through Moonrise Kingdom, um, is used early on in the film score there. 
Hmm. Um, and the moment that it came on, there was just something so familiar about it to me when I was watching the film and I couldn't really place my finger on it, but it just waves of nostalgia in some ways. But it's the Peter and the Wolf side that I think I was fascinated with as a kid. And I think it's because it scared me. Um, huh. It A lot of the instrumentation kind of haunted me a little bit. And I think I was sort of... Uh, intrigued by that like i i mean i was very young so i, I you know it, there's like a cartoonishness to it but there's also like some levels of darkness with the wolf mm. itself and just some of the instrumentation um kind of has i don't know a, a little spooky factor to it and there i think there's something about that that obviously hit me hard enough to remember it uh, um <laughs> just at all really you know um because i could just as easily be you know talking about spirit of the radio or you know fly by night or tom sawyer instead but we're talking about peter and the wolf and i think it's because it, that that haunting narrative is basically what embedded itself in me and mm. i think what i i've learned from that I mean, or at least what I take away from that is not only just a, a spirit and interest in music in the first place at all, um, to be sitting on the floor listening to this record over and over again, but um, that there, I, I tend to be drawn to uh, things that have narrative arcs, basically. Mm -hmm. um, and um, I think I'm coming more and more to terms with that. Um, but yeah, it, it, some, something that can tell a story from start to finish, I think is of interest to me as opposed to just a collection of, of music, which uh, of course I like that as well, but, um, this nonetheless stuck with me. Yeah. Um, is it one that you've listened to since then, or does it literally just hold a place in memory in your head? It really just holds a place in memory. I, I actually didn't really i mean i i i whistle the main theme pretty often in, in my house whether i'm doing the dishes or whatnot it's it's a it's a you know nice little da, 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 da. um you know it's got a nice little lilt to it doesn't it yeah it does yeah yeah um so uh yeah so i guess it's always there um but no i i don't you know i'm not you know out walking the dog listening to peter and the wolf or anything um, mm -hmm. yeah, but, uh, but I did, uh, I, th I think basically the, this podcast, you know, asking me these questions is what made me think about it, at, at really, at, you know, close up. Um, I was, it, it took me a minute to even find the exact record. I had to text with my family about it to make sure that I had found the right one. Huh. Um, and then my sister said that she remembered it fondly as well. And then she had also, played the record with her children um oh, when they lovely. were growing up as well so seems like it's something that has kind of passed around the family as well yeah i'm so interested so so you say that there's a few more records in the mix that say your brother had um i think i've seen you mention before as well your sister had a collection as well that was worth you burrowing into when you were a kid i mean how old were you when you were listening to this record <sighs> 
I'm really bad at <laughs> a, at, at that um, at age memory <laughs> stuff. Um, young enough. Uh, let's see. Yeah, I, I mean, I guess y- what my, uh, my 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 curiosity is the fact that when you're a kid, I guess when you're particularly young, less so. But as you get older, if you hear something like Rush, like you say, or Simon and Garfunkel, I think um, culturally, at least for me something with rock instrumentation is is more likely to stick than classical something that has a classical basis i'm just very very intrigued right. that this is the thing that stuck with you i mean i wondered if you had any thoughts as to why it was something within the classical vein that well, was the thing uh, that launched this so uh, i mean to answer your question prior about my brothers and sisters and their music collections um my sister played piano um in the house as well um, so I think my, let's just call it musical relationship through her was mainly through that. Um, right, whereas right. my, my oldest brother, he was, you know, the one with like the sugar cubes and the Smiths and U2 and Billy Bragg cassettes and all that kind of stuff. Mm. Um, which, you know, that ended up informing me a little bit later in life, uh, as well. Yeah, I don't know <laughs> why. Um, I don't, I mean, I, I think, it, you know, classical music was just in the house. Simon and Garfunkel definitely was mm. as well. Um, but that record was played a lot on, you know, our family camping trips and things like that. Um, but I, I, I think I was intrigued by my sister's piano playing. Um, and and th- I think that's ultimately what led to me asking my parents for piano lessons as well um was was that hmm. um which i was you know it's funny i, I kind of rabbit hold a little bit on this when when i was asked to do it because i started realizing one of my favorite pieces that i played over and over again as a child on piano when i was first taking lessons it was one of the first pieces i learned was minuet and g by bach right. um and I've since realized that a lot of I I there's a lot a lot that I can hear in that piece that I actually hear in my music still today. Oh wow! Um, yeah, like and I never even really thought about it, but uh, things like an accidental memory um, and some of my early piano stuff feels like very sort of variations on minuet and G in a way. I, I don't know if it's necessarily in the same key or you know if it's more of like a stylistic way of playing um um the counterpoint or something like that but yeah it was just weird going back and listening to it because i had to kind of search it out like what was that piece again and then i listened and i was like wow this this sounds like something i mean i'm not gonna say that sounds i would write something like bach or anything but you know what i mean it kind of yeah (laughs) like oh sure yeah this bach piece that sounds like something i would do (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but it just it just felt very uh it just felt very me i guess i don't know mm. you know mm-hmm. yeah it's probably it's just probably like a church thing or something you know sure right yeah absolutely the other thing i wanted to i wanted to take a tenuous stab at something i mean it's so interesting that you picked this record which i guess was originally so peter and the wolf was intended to introduce young children to the orchestra and the instruments and I guess the idea of mood and narrative within music which you've talked about there a bit too 
I was intrigued to right. see in the text for your Piano Works album that it also holds this idea of wanting to be a gateway and an introduction for people, say, wanting to play piano or at least be accessible. So I wondered right. whether or not this record was kind of, you know, this Peter and the Wolf was loitering in your head or, or, or kind of enabled you to want to... <laughs> You know, I mean, I guess it must. I mean, it must have. I th I think these are things like it's so meaning and and concept and stuff can be so frustrating because I I sort of as much as I live and die and get uh, obsessive about them, there's also another part of me that like tries really hard to not think about that stuff so much <laughs> either because it can kind of you know get in the way of things. But I yeah. mean surely there's some i mean I, I i to answer more directly no i i wasn't even thinking of the peter and the wolf record when i did that with piano works um, right yeah but surely um it instilled itself in some manner that i wanted to you know that i would also want to do something similar i don't think that was really like its entire intended angle i just it became important to me that the pieces were simplistic enough that you could kind of grow as you played along with them from piece to piece. And I think in some ways it really more reminded me of just the, me learning piano as a child as well. And the steps that I took, you know, growing from book to book. Um, mm. Yeah. The, the, the transcriptions that we released as well, the, I sort of mimicked the, um, the artwork of the books that I, you know, grew up working with as well. Matthew, let's go to your second important record. So which one do you want to go for next? Uh, I guess let's go with the Eno, Another mm. Green World. Or and or I wrote really I think I wrote two here. <laughs> yeah, you're allowed. That's okay. So another Green World and discrete music. Yeah. So. They released within like two months of each other, so Yeah, that, therefore that counts. I I I I'll admit that. Um, so yeah, give me a little introduction as to why these records are important to you. Right. Um, well, I mean, everybody knows Eno's contribution to music. Um, mm. You know, he's he's been everywhere and all over many things of importance. Um, <laughs> but I think for me, uh, before getting into his work i had kind of been growing up in louisville and doing sort of teen angst type of music for a lack of a better term <laughs> um it was just sort of a reflection of you know whatever was in pop culture mixed with like the local scene kind of all thrown together hmm. um but it, it, nonetheless, it was a kind of a traditional band dynamic. And when I moved out to Portland, this is in 98 or 99, um, 
I my world had kind of been broken open. I guess we really should have gone with the next record prior to this, <laughs> but whatever. <laughs> We're spanning through time. Um, so, uh, uh, nonetheless, I had kind of opened up to a lot of different music um, in my late teen years through my brothers and through some friends and through a couple of uh, Louisville music scene uh, bands. And um, so I guess eventually when I stumbled upon Another Green World, which is, I think, the first Eno record that I heard, it's a little fuzzy, my, my early times here in Portland, but me and my roommates basically were spending all of our money at the record shop you know, whenever we had any money, which wasn't very often. <laughs> um, but this one in particular, I think it created an awareness in me that somebody could use the studio as the instrument and um, have others performing a lot of the music and then sort of cut and paste it in this sort of William Burroughsy sort of manner mm. together to create an an original intended singular voice of one person um you know it, it, the idea that a, a single person could create something that ultimately did things that were beyond what you would think a single person would do and the idea of using the studio as an instrument uh became very interesting to me and mm. guiding ultimately for me as well and discrete music as well came in around this time so did you buy them both in quick succession too when did that come into your your life i you know the funny thing is i think i had another green world first and um i was working at a cafe that had music for airports on the cassette next to just various things we would play in the cafe so i think it was actually music for airports that i probably became was probably the second record that I heard and discrete music probably followed shortly after that amongst, you know, everything else in the catalog. Um, mm. I mean, I, I think I ultimately ended up wanting just everything that I could get my hands on. <laughs> um, but I, I would still say the, the same thing um, for discrete music less. So, I mean, what's, I guess so interesting is that it's less so about, using all these disparate parts um, coming together and being cut and paste together and more about these singular pieces being manipulated, uh, nonetheless still a, a very much a studio record. I mean, sounds like one of the impacts of this was that you wanted to dive into more Eno, which is very much understandable. Um, yeah. What? Where else did these records take you in terms of your say your listening habits and you know the kind of music that you wanted to make um that's i mean that's sort of i guess i wouldn't say that Eno specifically linearly drove me well maybe i don't know it's kind of hard to say i i <laughs> because a lot of what i was also listening to around this time was really nothing to do with that you know it was more like Elephant Six stuff, Olivia Tremor Control, Boards of Canada, Storm and Stress, Sonic mm. Youth, Pavement, Silver Jews, Dinosaur Jr. Though oddly, there was a certain point in time where our house just decided we were going to listen to classical music only for a month. Wow. Um, 
<laughs> and so that was just what we did. We just stopped listening to everything else and only listened to classical for a month. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. We were just all over the place, really, um, making loud racket in the basement and just buying as many records as possible and uh, just digesting tons of it. Um, but I think in some ways, my over time, my interest in stuff like Eno probably led me into a lot of sort of New York underground stuff, I guess. Mm. And maybe through that, I got informed by into stuff like Steve Reich and minimalism, Philip Glass, that eventually led to things like John Cage, Christian Wolf, um, you know, Stockhausen. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I mean, so... It, I mean, it may seem weird to start with another green world and end up at Stockhausen, but I don't know. You know, I mean, it, I think it, that's what happened. You know, ultimately, it's it's funny. You know, all of these records are so important <laughs> to me. It's just like a it, it's a matter of just like I, I feel like you have less control over what you're what decides to become important and more. It's more almost just like moments in your life where this music happen to be present as well i guess they it's i almost it's it's hard to tell whether it's the music making the moment or the moment making the music absolutely you know yeah Um, totally yeah i i don't really know how to add to that but it's just interesting nonetheless that this record yeah led me in further further and further back in time i guess and into minimalism mainly i think is what what i became most attracted to is it a record another green world is it a record that you still listen to now oh yeah absolutely huh yeah um i it's probably one of my well i'm not gonna put it on the list (laughs) (laughs) great (laughs) yeah yeah it's it's probably been with me and listen i've probably listened to it more than any other record i guess Hmm. um yeah it's funny because it's not even out of the four pop records, especially when I was working at the record store, people would just be like, no way, man. You know, it's like <laughs> all about, you know, taking Tiger Mountain or here come the warm jets or whatever. And I just always stood my ground. I just always loved another grim world. Most, I don't know why I, I, <laughs> I think there there's some sort of emotional resonance to it that I find that I don't find as present on the other ones, I guess. So I think that's probably it. I I tend to I tend to get drawn into the emotional stuff a little bit. So I was going to ask: Is that how you fought your corner for another Green Worlds? The fact that it had that <laughs> emotional resonance there for you? You know, I don't know. I I know for one thing, I'm sure it, I I was having a hard time when it came to I'll come running the tire shoe. But you know, <laughs> but but outside of that, you know, I mean. Yeah, I I don't want to you know I don't want to say anything here. <laughs> do you have a um, yeah? Do you have a favorite track or one that pops into your head protrudes now as you're thinking about the record? Jeez, oh, I mean Saint Elmo's Fire is wonderful. I mean the big ship is just you know it's four chords just on repeat that just becomes this siren of of pure emotion. I, I'm. I, I have a hard time not getting a little bit uh, 
touched mm. every every single time I hear that song. It's interesting that um you I, I feel like in the past let's say decade or so, I've started to notice its usage more in um, film where it once was not before. Um, But it, it, it it clearly uh, drives an emotional stake into a lot of people, I think. Nice. Um, Yeah. I I think also I've probably, you know, played with those same four chords like 10,000 times throughout my career as well. You know, (laughs) Yeah, this is it, isn't it? When they're wired so deep, it's like you can't yeah. help it. Um, yeah, exactly. Oh God, yeah, it can be such a pain. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was going to ask you about this because it seems like um, something that you seem to talk about or bring up quite a lot is the. Uh, I don't know how to put this. I don't want to. You, you can correct my summation of what I'm about to say, but. I guess as you get older, the what you accrue and how it becomes a bit of a blockage to more of a liberated and easy form of making music. Um, is that fair to say that that's something that is a preoccupation? I, I've seen I've seen it mentioned in a couple of places. This idea of, and also I, you know, I'm thinking of your use of say generative music and other techniques that I guess can be used to bypass this, you know, this accrual of all these things that become habits i guess or influence like what may just come through naturally do you know what i mean that's a really interesting perspective um and one that i yeah i i do think i i've kind of i thought i've thought about the whole algorithmic thing quite a bit as well and and yeah and generative music um and I, i I think there is something to be said about the idea of ultimately just being the sort of the, the steerer of the ship mm. um, uh, as opposed to the immediacy of the uh, of how, how the how the content comes to exist, I guess, for mm-hmm. lack of a better term. Yeah, um, I, I don't know if I wholeheartedly subscribe to that, but there is something um yeah, I mean, there there is something nice about it. There is something that's a little bit, that lifts a little bit of weight off of the, at least the difficulty that I have um, in some of my ways of composing. Um, just, I think uh, it's so easy to get so, so bogged down um, in technique i guess yeah would maybe sure. be uh, the word that i would use there and i would use, i would use that pretty broadly um but i mean i can sit on my front porch and just uh stare at the sky endlessly um kind of contemplating exactly w- what move i'm going to make and how i'm going to make it and that can become pretty taxing. Um, and mm. I think there's something to be said that I, I honestly, I feel like it was like modular synthesis that brought me into starting to think of things a little bit differently in composition because it occupies your brain in a different way and mm. sort of take, or at least it does mine. It occupies my brain in a different way when I'm pinning things together in sort of this, experimental and adventurous way just sort of seeking just to seek and seeing you know experimenting just to experiment 
and it allows for you to sort of get hit by things a little bit easier. Mm. Um, I, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think unfortunately I've thought about it a lot, but I'm not sure that I have the 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 best answer for it yet, at least. Um, yeah, that... it's it's a compli- it's a complicated topic uh, that I I want to tread cautiously with. I guess you know. Nice. Yeah, for sure. Uh, but yeah, I, I mean, it, you know, it, it, there is something nice about having this sort of weight removed in, in the composition process that allows for you to think more technically minded about it and to almost allow yourself to be the listener itself, you know, as opposed to the creator. Matthew, let's go to your final important record. Again, you've used the proximity of their release to sneak in a second. So, <laughs> bravo. <laughs> so we've gone for Rachel's music for Egon Sheila and also the Sea and the Bells, which both came out in 1996. Is that correct? Yeah. What's up with that? Yeah. Crazy. Um, right. And, you know, handwriting just the year before. Uh, yeah. So that, that was three right in a row. That was really an impressive bunch of writing there so i chose uh egon and seeing the bells um yeah they're both really good i I just couldn't decide between the two um (laughs) i i i think i probably listened to egon uh more these days but at the time i think i when they came out i think seeing the bells was a little bit more had a little bit more of uh uh I had a little bit more of a reaction to that to that record. Um, basically, I think w- w- one of the first things that I I immediately think of with these both of these records is the extremely vivid imagery and high, kind of high concept themes that are used as um, uh, w- ways of, of, of storytelling. Um, mm-hmm. it, it sort of in in some ways links a little bit back to Peter and the Wolf, um, but just it was a little bit different coming from these local punk music scene <laughs> uh, underground punk scene uh but yeah i think i i was drawn to you know oh wow see in the bells uh th- there's all this pablo neruda pablo neruda like poems inside um there's samples from films in it um yeah, so that I think at the time was really interesting to me that you could kind of they they sort of pulled you into this very specific world uh, in that in seeing the bells case it almost seemed you know this this person kind of going crazy basically, hmm. um, and Egon Schiele obviously pulling into that world as well the the world of this artist. Yeah, I I don't know how much I had really come across that beforehand, but I think 
what specifically was so interesting to me was just that it was, you know, there was nothing pretentious about them at all. <laughs> uh, they were, it was like hanging out with your next door neighbors, talking to them. Um, I was lucky to be able to see them several times while living in Louisville, but the Louisville music scene, uh, they were kind of the part that I really clung on to them and Ariel M probably. And that opened me up to like, uh, you know, slint had already happened, but that was, I was a little bit too young for that. Um, but it opened me up to Slint and Tortoise and Ariel M and Palace Music, Palace Brothers, whatever, Palace, uh, For Carnation. It created this vast world of music I'd never heard before, the Chicago, Louisville sort of stuff. Lots of it instrumental, all of it seemingly being done, you know, very simply in people's houses and basements and lots of handmade artifacts and things like that um that was something that i had no knowledge of prior to that um you know i'd i'd sort of heard some my brothers were at this point in time on the west coast and they were sending me yola tango cat power built spill um stuff like that um, cool. which i i loved all that stuff as well um but this was something that was happening in my own backyard um uh, that was like oh wow like this is something that you that real normal people can do it's not just some you know pipe dream type of stuff yeah yeah um you've mentioned like a lot of really great bands from that era <laughs> and within that scene i'm so intrigued and these are wonderful records. It's been a while since I tuned into Rachel's and this really reminded me how awesome they are. So what was it though about Rachel's out of all those bands that you've mentioned that has them rising to the top now when you're asked to, you know, pick important records in 2023? Well, I honestly, originally the, the record that I first thought of when I think of them as actually systems layers, which came out in 2003, mm. um, which I think is an, an extremely undervalued uh, masterpiece really. So I wanted to go with that record because I, I found it extremely influential um, compositionally as well. But I think the reason I chose Egon and C and the bells were because they were my immediate understand my immediate awareness of them and my and what they taught me about local music scene etc what i had just kind of explained um but really systems layers for example compositionally uh just the idea of you know all these field recordings and little snippets and just tiny moments of music all kind of brought together to create this one larger singular vision i think was absolutely huge to me um it, this it, this almost it just it, I, I think all of them in a way feel like every single one of their records in a way feels almost like this very specific document of time mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. and i think in some ways i don't know i think i've released a lot of records that i feel that way about as well and some of them sometimes i kind of almost wish sometimes they can be a little embarrassing to me honestly because i feel as though i've 
grown grown as a musician quite frankly and <laughs> i'm not sure i would release anything like them again you know uh, right you um, show yeah yeah but at the same time they are very much the, these polaroids of of a moment in time and i think there there's something wonderful and beautiful about that that should you know be hung on to i guess mm-hmm. um but yeah, I don't know. Really, I think it was, you know, even after I moved out to the West Coast, I was in Seattle at a time. Rachel's came through twice around that time. And one time was at like a theater um, called On the Boards. And then the second time they came through, they played at just like a regular rock club. And I remember remarking about that to Jason and he was just like, yeah, I don't know. I, I really like the, I kind of, because I sort of was thinking like, oh, isn't it so much better in the theater experience? And he was like, I don't know. I actually kind of prefer the rock club vibe, huh. you know? Right. Um, and I think at the moment I was kind of surprised by that, but I think there's actually something really wonderful and beautiful about that, that, and that's what I loved about that. Not there was nothing pretentious about it, right? It was just like, yeah, you know, sure. we, no, we're people on a stage playing music. You know, like we're we're not some like holy thing that I think a lot of comes hand in hand with a lot of uh, more classical oriented music, I guess. Yeah, I think that's why it's interesting you picked these two records because I think particularly when they came out within the same year, you get the very strong sense that they occupy both of those spaces very comfortably and don't wholly belong in either of them which is you know creates a lot of vibrancy i mean you mentioned jason there what is it about jason because it sounds like you connect specifically with you know jason's output or jason's musician what is it about jason that you think you really connect with or that draws you into his stuff yeah i you know i I don't know. You know, I, he, you know, he worked, he worked at the local record store in Louisville. Um, you know, he, he, I, he was hands-on. He was very DIY and a lot of stuff. I, I don't, I'm, I'm not even sure I feel right speaking about him because he, it's not really my place to say sure. such yeah. things about who he was or how he was. Uh, but to me, um, just someone that was so, I guess, you know, what I experienced was someone that had a really wonderful ethos about underground culture um, and also was so easy, so approachable um, and so mm-hmm. kind and and doing all had his hand in just so many different bands as well. You know, he, he, he was everywhere in Louisville Um <laughs> you know it makes me so sad that he had such a short life um so to me he he uh, is this emblem of 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 that time and of that uh, and of that way of being Matthew, I've got one more question for you, and it's about the way that you bring music into your life now as a listener. Like, do you have 
places that you like to go to get music? Do you have particular formats you gravitate towards? Yeah, tell me a bit about that. Um, yeah, uh, well, I have a pretty healthy vinyl collection. Um, <laughs> I have since, you know, back in the days of going to your ecstasy, actually, um, bought some of my earliest records there. Um, but yeah, I'd say that's probably the number one format that I've digested most music over the years. Um, I, you know, I use a little bit of everything, I guess, you know, I, I have some streamers as well that I, I'd say I begrudgingly use them, but, uh, but they're really helpful for just discovery and like scoop, like scooting around looking for different things. It's a very quick way to like hear something, you know, um, mm -hmm. But yeah, I mean, I still, I still like just a good old record store and buying vinyl at the shop. Um, I feel like it gets harder and harder these days um, to do that. Uh, a lot of, at least I've noticed a lot of shops around here are starting to lean more towards secondhand records, um, which makes sense. That's, you know, I mean, that's going to pay their rent. Um, sure, Yeah. But yeah, going to the record shop and, uh, you know, just talking with the people that work there and buying stuff and hearing what other people are into is definitely my favorite way. It's, you know, doing that, going to the bookstore as well, I'd say the same, you know, just something about the hands-on and the, the communication with other people that I really appreciate. Um, and I will always love, you know, physical format as well. Mm. Um, but yeah, you know, all the other formats and things have their place and, and uh, conveniences, I guess. Awesome. Well, Matthew, thank you so much. These records were great. Uh, I've had a lovely time with them. I'm, like I said, having a really, really great time with wearing Marvels and Consensus Reality as well. Um, thank you. Thank you so much for all your energy on this. I really appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure. I, thank you for being interested and talking with me. It was really cool I, I, I'm kind of surprised how much I enjoyed it <laughs> <laughs> nice uh, thanks once again to everyone listening see you next time goodbye